0: Okay. I'll have to learn to read the light, sorry. Okay, let me say again, I'm looking forward to this, uh, this man speaking. I know he's going to speak from his heart. I believe God probably has really worked on him to have him to give to us what we need. In the name of this sermon is Encouragement in the Midst of Persecution. I can see that's going to be very important to us for things that are going on now and in the future. So for that message today, Curtis Whitley. Thank you. You guys can stand if you want. So, good afternoon, it's wonderful to be here as it always is on another beautiful Sabbath day and uh, as was mentioned by Ron, Encouragement in the Midst of Persecution. And so that's the title of today's message and Today I'm going to be continuing my series uh, on Paul's letter of 1 Thessalonians. And last message, we went over uh, this idea that Paul brought out in verse 13 of chapter 2, uh, which was that idea of the work of the Word in our lives. And so today we're going to turn our attention to, cha- to chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 16. I know it's only three verses. I'm very slow. But this section is one of the more difficult sections uh, in, the, in the New Testament, in this letter especially, uh, because there's some things said in it that I think that can have some serious implications if it's not interpreted appropriately. To start off today, I'd like to read an excerpt from N.T. Wright's book, or his commentary, uh, that I think he wrote back in the early 2000s, uh, Paul for Everyone. And so this isn't from his Bible study, he has a Bible study that, kind of like what we did with Ephesians, but he has a commentary he wrote, and he starts off this section, uh, this introduction to the section of First Thessalonians 2 chapters, or uh, verse 13 through, through 16, with this little story. The day started clear and bright, with not a cloud in the sky. My son and I set off to climb in the mountains with every hope that the weather would hold. But as we reached the top of our first peak, a shock awaited us. We were climbing steeply on the south side and couldn't see the sky in the north. But when we came up on the summit ridge, we saw the sky darkening dangerously with thick black clouds coming straight toward us on a strong wind. We quickly put on our protective clothing, and within 20 minutes, the whole sky was black. A few minutes later, the rain was sweeping down all around us and hardly stopped for the rest of the day. That is the feeling we get at this point in the letter. If somebody had cut off 1 Thessalonians at verse 13 of chapter 2, we would have a sense of clear skies, beautiful views, and everything in the young church developing straightforwardly. Alas, things are not usually like that in the kingdom of God in its present form. There is a struggle still going on, and those who give their allegiance to Jesus as Messiah and Lord will become involved in it whether they like it or not. And so what's being referred to here is that you have this letter and there's things that are being talked about and all of a sudden Paul talks about something that we maybe don't want to think about and that is the difficulties, the, the, the persecution that can be brought to us because of our faith in Christ. So the format for my message today is a little bit different. I'm deviating just a little bit from my normal format where I would go through the text and as I went through the text, I would present main points and applicable things that we could get from the text. I'm going to simply just go through verses 14 through 16 and analyze what Paul is saying within the context of this letter. And at the end, I want to touch upon a reflection that I think that we can get from this section of Scripture. So I'm going to start in verse 13, the, the passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. I want to read verse 13 through 16, and then we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in, in verses 14 through 16. So, in 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, verse 13, as we read last message, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And that's what we talked about last message the work of the word and what it has done in us and what receiving that word has done in us as far as our growth and how important it is uh, to, to focus on that work that has been begun in us by God's word, but of course, that's the means in which God is growing us spiritually. So verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And so going back to that first verse that we're going to analyze, verse 14, we see that Paul tells the Thessalonians that they had become imitators. It's the same word that you used earlier in the letter in verse 6 of chapter 1 when he said they were imitators of Paul and his traveling companions as well as Christ who received the word in the midst of much tribulation. But Paul's saying that now the Thessalonians are experiencing this new persecution. And they're becoming imitators of the Judean churches of God. And so that word that they had received that we see happens and is discussed in verse 13. By receiving the message of the gospel as the word of God, as we read in verse 13, these individuals, these Thessalonians or Thessalonians, had begun suffering persecution for this new found faith. And this persecution was coming from their own countrymen, their fellow brethren living there in the city of Thessalonica. Now Paul, we know that he experienced much persecution, him and his traveling companions. He alludes to this in this letter, as we've read in the very beginning of chapter 2. Talked about that experience that he had in Philippi. You can read in Acts, the 16th chapter and verse 17, the things that they went through while they were traveling, even before they got to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, they experienced persecution by their own fellow brethren, the Jews, that is, Paul and his traveling companions. But we also know that in Acts 16, and Paul alludes to this, if you were to read that, is the story of his experience in Philippi. And they were arrested, they were accused of troubling the city, as verse 20-21 through says, troubling the city by teaching customs which were not lawful. And they were taken to the magistrates and they were put into prison. And not just prison but the inner prison in a a little bit more of a humiliating way. Because they were put into that inner prison where they would be put in stocks. Their feet would be put in stocks and it would be very, very uncomfortable. And so now Paul is moving and discussing the Thessalonians and what they're experiencing. They had become imitators of the churches of God in Judea. Who had also suffered for the gospel's sake by their own people. And that is their own fellow Jews. Now the identity of the Judean churches is probably an allusion to the earliest Christian movement we see arise after Christ's ascension. And the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 when we go back and we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to point out the specific way that Paul uses the word church here. Because I think that when we read it with modern eyes, it can kind of, we can kind of go over it and not really recognize it. Here Paul says this idea of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. During this time, because this letter was written somewhat early compared to other letters in the New Testament, this term sometimes would be used in a more general way. This word church, ecclesia, as it is in, in, in the Greek. And it could refer to a variety of assemblies. It could refer to a Jewish synagogue. It could even refer to a Hellenistic assembly. It wasn't as specific as maybe we think of it today and as it would become a little bit later on. By using the phrase churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ, Paul is probably referring to the original church of God in Jerusalem that would eventually be dispersed as a result of the persecution that broke out after Stephen's death, and eventually, later on, would be referred to as the church of God, or the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, as we will see later in Acts, in chapter 9, verse 31. We won't see that, we won't be covering that, but if you were to read a little bit later in Acts, after that initial forming of those first Christians, after that day of Pentecost. So the question is, why is Paul using this analogy with the Judeans, and the Thessalonians. It seems like the reason that Paul chose to use the Judean churches as the comparison to the Thessalonians was for the simple purpose of comforting them. He wanted them to understand that they were not alone. This comparison would be a way to show the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, that they were truly fellow members of the same body as the Judean church and were in solidarity with other brethren. The way that Paul mentions them seems to indicate that the Thessalonians had some awareness of the Judean church. They probably knew a little bit about what happened in Jerusalem. How there was a great persecution, how they were dispersed all over the known Palestine area. They probably knew about this. This persecution, coupled with the Thessalonians' resiliency, and steadfast faith was the confirmation that God had really spoke through Paul while they were there. And it was a demonstration of the gospel's effect. Now, this probably, incur- I mean, when we read this, it's probably harder to see the encouraging words come across to us like it would be maybe for the Thessalonians, who were truly going through some things and probably heard about the great faith of these Judeans. Christians, these early Jewish Christians, the very first, some of them that had heard Jesus themselves. And they probably were very comforted, and I think that was, is what Paul was intending, very comforted to know that they were in line with others that faced the same thing from their own countrymen as well. Because we know the Judean church, they faced the opposition from the Jewish leaders. One of them, of course, being the individual who actually penned this letter. So we see that the same courage that the Judean Christians had in the midst of their persecution was now being displayed by the Thessalonians. And it seems that Paul is doing this in a pastoral fashion. He's being pastoral, meaning he's trying to encourage these individuals. And that's why he uses this as an example. Turning to verse 15 through 16, things get a little bit more difficult. And there's reasons why things get a little bit more difficult because Paul uses this harsh language regarding his own countrymen, his fellow Jews. In verses 15 through 16, we've already read it, Paul writes some things that many have found to be hard to swallow. Living in the 21st century, that being probably because of what has happened in world history and we'll get into that in just a little while but picking up in the last part of verse 14 for you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans who killed the Lord both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they do not disple- and they do not please God and are contrary to all men forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins but wrath has come upon them To the uttermost. And because of this harsh nature and tone of verse 15 through 16, some have actually avoided altogether preaching this section of Scripture. This is an example. An example of this can be found in what's known as the revised common lectionary. Now we don't really use a lectionary here at church. We have a holy day calendar that kind of directs us to talk about different things throughout the year, right? But a lectionary is simply like a thematic uh, pattern to preach about, it's a thematic pattern of scriptures that's usually uh, created after their different types of holy days that, you know, you know, obviously Christmas, and if, it's, if it's Catholics, it's many different days and things like that. But the Revised Common Lectionary, it's used by, the American and Canadian, by American and Canadian bishops, as well as a variety of Protestant denominations, including Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopal, Episcopalians, and some Methodists. They omit this section of Scripture when covering First Thessalonians. And it's intentional. Another example of how this is difficult for some to accept is the fact that some scholars try to argue that this is not an original part of 1 Thessalonians, that Paul writes verse 14, but 15 and 16 has been inserted by some sort of anti-Jewish scribe later on after Paul wrote this. But I think that there's a danger in thinking like that, because what you're saying is, is that when there's a difficult passage, we'll just figure out a way to either say it's not really originally there, or a way to avoid it. And churches, and I'm not saying this church, but I mean all of us can have mistakes, people have their own Bibles, right? They're going to read this. So it should be preached, it should be discussed, it should be talked about, and it should be carefully interpreted. And we're going to try to do that today. Instead of running from it, it's something that I think must be addressed. What is difficult for some, of course, is the harsh language That Paul uses for the people that he calls Judeans in 15 and 16. Now that's the New King James Version. You look at any other modern version we know. The word is all Jews. It's the Jews that he's referring. Or not, not all Jews. Excuse me. I apologize. Scratch that. He's referring to the Jews in Judea. He's not referring to all Jews. My apologies. And that's what should be noted. And unfortunately, in history, some people have interpreted this to mean all Jews, and it has become a source to justify anti Jewish and anti Semitic feelings. So, Paul is obviously frustrated in this passage of Scripture. He's saying things that really are not inaccurate, they're not untrue. We're going to go through some of the charges right now. First, Paul says that they killed the Messiah. And we know that even though his death, it was carried out by Roman officials, it was instigated by a small number of Jewish leaders. And even though it was instigated, when we read the Gospels, it was approved by many other, both Gentile as well as Jewish. We see in the early chapters of Acts, for example, that day of Pentecost, Peter would lay this out to those religious leaders and other Jews that he was preaching to. He would say in verse 22 of chapter 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that that he should be held by it. Now, we would probably all agree that if Paul was present at Jesus' crucifixion, he would have been himself in agreement with Jesus being crucified. Because it happened long before Paul was converted. And we know that when the first Christians came about, he was persecuting those Christians and trying to bring them to court. The other charge, it says, is that they killed the prophets. They killed the prophets. This is not something new. This is the tradition that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. The charge of killing a prophets is actually something that we originally see in the Old Testament. We see references, for example, by Elijah in the days of King Ahab. And 1 Kings, I believe, chapter 19, you read that chapter and... And, and Elijah, he, he uses this, this phrase that they've killed your prophets. They're not listening to you. We also see in 2 Chronicles, right before and in the midst of this overtaking by the Chaldeans, by Babylon, we see these words in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15-16, through 16, referring to the kings that refused to listen to God's prophets. He says, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them By his messengers rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there were no remedy. And we see that take place. I mean, God pleaded through his prophets for the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel to turn back. To turn back. And eventually the judgment had to be brought about and they had to be uh, taken into captivity. We need to remember one thing though. These passages do not indicate, these passages in the Old Testament do not indicate in any way, shape, or form that every person in Israel, every Israelite, every Jewish individual was contrary to God as we see Elijah Earlier, before the Babylonian captivity, we see Elijah. He has that, woe is me, I'm the only one left. And God assured him that he had reserved a remnant that had not bowed to Baal. So when we see these, you know, these judgments placed on Israel or, or, or Jews, we, we have to remember that it's not all. It's not all. Likewise, when we see later Jesus talk in places like Matthew 23, maybe you're familiar with that chapter, I'm sure you've read it, but Matthew 23, Jesus gives the woes to the religious leaders, all the different woes, that they think they're so righteous, that this external righteousness is what they rely on, but you know, inside, you know, they're just dead. And Jesus, you know, referring to the scribes and Pharisees, he makes comments like, in verse 31... You are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. That's some strong language from Jesus, and we've read that before. But I don't think he was referring to their physically and genealogically sons of those who killed the prophets. Because Jesus himself probably had ancestors that partook in this. Right? What Jesus is saying is that they were exhibiting the attitude that was patterned after those in the past who rejected God. Their attitude, the way they thought about things, their haughtiness was just like those individuals from the past, from their own heritage that they had read about, that they had worked probably. And we know in New Testament times, the Jews in Jesus' day had vigorously worked to try to never let what happened happen again. To, to get serious about the law. To get serious about the covenant of God. To repent and to, to move forward and, and, and to, to the point where at some point they got to feeling like maybe they were invincible. No one could tell them anything that they didn't know. The other thing that he's charged with, or they're charged with, are contrary to all men. They're contrary to all men because they prevent us from going to the Gentiles that they may be saved. And Paul is almost like saying that you're like an individual that's trying to hinder a doctor, that's trying to bring medicine to someone who's sick. And of course he's referring to that in this way because he's looking at their hindrance, their attempts to hinder him and the other missionaries from bringing the gospel message to the Gentiles. Because he, this gospel message, Paul, that he's trying to bring, was for the purpose of saving their souls. From the wrath of God, that will eventually come. The last little thing, that's probably the most difficult that Paul charges them with. They fill up the measure of their sins and wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. They fill up the measure of their sins, and wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. The difficulty in interpreting this passage, which is a little bit above my head, uh, and I've read much of it on here uh, in different commentaries, is because the, the Greek tense, the verb tense that Paul uses in this passage, is a past tense verb, but wrath has come upon them, which suggests something that has taken place in the past, that has already happened but he uses a corresponding Greek adverbial phrase to the uttermost. Usually, translations say, at last. This is a term, an expression, that's typically reserved to eschatological events, like end-time things. So that's what makes this so difficult. It's almost as if Paul is using a past tense verb to describe future events. Like they haven't happened or they have happened but they haven't happened yet they're going to happen so i was reading different things there's a guy by the name of john bryan i I have many different commentaries that i checked on this he kind of presented something uh, that you know just some possibilities of what maybe paul was referring to when he said that the wrath has come upon them and he referred and he lists some of the things that the jews went through during this period of time remember thessalonians was written somewhat early But the years 40 through 49, there were some difficult things historically that happened, such as the decade started out with Caligula attempting to set up a statue of himself in the Jerusalem temple. Obviously, that's going to pose some difficulties for Jews. Judea suffered from a string of inept and brutal Roman uh, procreators here. Uh, Probably not pronouncing that correctly, so I apologize. 48 through 49, there was a food shortage in Jerusalem and a massacre of Jewish pilgrims in the temple during Passover. And of course, Claudius would expel the Jews from Rome during this time. And so that's some possible events that has been presented. We're not 100% clear what Paul is referring to here. I do think that the Thessalonians probably understood what he meant. Others have tried to explain this by saying that What Paul is doing here is that he's so sure that this judgment's going to come that he almost talks as if it's already came. And so I'm not going to choose one or the other because I think that the gist is that we do know judgment is going to come eventually to those who continue to oppose God's people and what God's will is. And of course, this right here, the easiest solution for some people, is what I mentioned earlier, just claim that it's a later insertion and it wasn't originally written by Paul, and then move on. But I think there's difficulty in that because as we just discussed, where do you draw the line on that? And if we're going to have faith that this is God's word, we have to take the difficult, the difficult with the easy, with the simple. So with this, I want to caution against interpreting this text in a way that promotes you know, any kind of anti-Semitic feelings. And anti-Semitism, you probably know what that term is. It seems like there's a little bit more that's uh, it's being used a little bit more, uh, you know, as, as, as now we live in an age where a lot of people are talking about, you know, prejudice and things like that in a variety of different ways. But anti-Semitism is essentially hostility or prejudice against Jewish people. And I think that ignoring this text, as some have done, Probably, which I don't just say probably, I'm pretty sure, have done so based on the atrocities that have been carried out against Jewish people throughout world history. The Holocaust, ongoing anti Semitism, or prejudice against Jews. But I think that the church has to face it. You know, Christianity, we have to face history. We have to face what has taken place before. And there's no real hiding from it. Reading, and I'm not saying the Scriptures. I'm, remember, I want to be clear, I'm differentiating between the Scriptures when I talk about the writings of, the, of church history. But you read some of the writings of church history, for example, Martin Luther, and it's difficult not to understand or, or, or get and realize and admit that there was a lot of theological groundwork that paved the way for things like the Holocaust that were written by people who were so-called Christians and not just Christians, but prominent figures in Christianity. For example, Martin Luther. There's many others, but Martin Luther, who's actually, we know, is the, the, the father of the Protestant Reformation, the German monk. He penned a book, he wrote a book, actually entitled On the Jews and Their Lies, where he advocated for the burning of Jewish homes, prayer books, and synagogues. So I think it's really important to, when we cover scriptures like this, that we interpreted appropriately because there have been ways that people have used these scriptures to justify heinous atrocities in history. What needs to be remembered is that Paul is using what's called insider language. As a Jew, Paul was expressing, of course, frustration with his fellow Jews. He was frustrated at a theological level. He was frustrated that they weren't accepting Jesus as the Messiah of God And not just were they rejecting Jesus, but they were proactively going after this early movement, these early Christians. Now, we also have to remember that during this period of time, the Christians were the minority group. They weren't the dominant group. They weren't the the, the majority by any means. They were just trying to survive. And we see through history that God's spirit was with these early believers, and it did survive. But in no way do we see any evidence that Paul himself rejected his own Jewishness. We don't see the same anti Jewish sentiments towards his fellow brethren that we would see later in our modern history. And when I say modern, you know, I'm, I'm even going back to, you know, 15th, 16th, 17th century and leading into things like the, the Holocaust that even on down to this day, they're still. Uh, prejudice against those who are Jews or other people as well in fact what we see is we don't see Paul necessarily boast but there is never a shyness for Paul when we read his letters he's not shy from where about where he comes from he's thankful almost I would say you know appreciative that he was born an Israelite for the simple point not because it it did anything for him salvation-wise, other than it gave him a foundation for understanding the precepts of God that maybe Gentile brethren didn't have, that they had to do a lot of unlearning. We read things like Paul say, "You know, I'm a child of Abraham, being of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews." In fact, let's go to Romans the ninth chapter because I really want to read these scriptures just so we can. These are the, Romans is written later, so this is what Paul's saying later because I'm wanting to prevent. And be clear that we can't interpret Paul as condemning all Jews to the point where interpreting this leads to anti-Semitic feelings. Romans the 9, chapter, verse 1-5. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. My countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. A little bit later in the first verse of 11, or chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And lastly, Romans the eleventh chapter, verse twenty-five and through twenty-nine. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, in no way am am I trying to analyze this section of Scripture today, or any of these. This would take quite a while. But I wanted to bring these out just to show later the way that Paul talks that demonstrates that we can't interpret First Thessalonians chapter 2 as Paul basically washing his hands of his own brethren, Jews, and basically accursing them. Because we will see later, Paul even uses to fellow Christians strong language as well in condemning them and their behavior. So with this, I want to bring out a reflection today. I covered that mainly because I think that when you, when you preach over this, or when I did, I, I kind of had a responsibility to, to, to bring this out based upon the things that happened in world history. I think that we need to remember, though, that Paul's main purpose in this, these three verses, is not to condemn Jews, but rather to console, to console the Thessalonians for what they were experiencing. My reflection is that persecution and opposition will arise. We all know this. And when they do, know that you are not alone and remain steadfast in exemplifying the work that God has begun in you. Opposition is going to come, we've all experienced it, and we've experienced it specifically because of our faith. In many different ways. And I wrote this point in this way because I think that when we look at the Thessalonian church, because I... Previously, went over, it seems that what Paul is doing here is he's consoling them by letting them know that they are not alone with what they're going through and that the work that God had begun in them is being proven by their response in the face of the resistance by their fellow countrymen. You know, Jesus, he had that parable of the sober, right? You look at Matthew, the 13th chapter, verse 20 through 21 he gives an explanation of this parable. And it's very interesting here because I think there is something that we can apply and we can think about. Verse 20, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures only for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises, because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And then in verse 23, a little bit later, few verses down. He says, But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. And I brought that out because if you look at this parable, the Thessalonians, they passed that test. they received the word. They heard it with joy, right? And the test came. The persecution came. And they remained steadfast. Because... The ground in which this seed was planted was good ground. And They were truly called by God as we are called by God. You know, we don't live in the times of the New Testament. We probably have never experienced. Maybe you have. I don't want to cut anyone short from what you've experienced. But most of us have probably not experienced the persecutions like the early Christians faced. We do live in the United States of America for the most part. Historically, our country has been based upon what is known as Judeo-Christian values. And I know that's changing a little bit with a push for secularism. And I think that, you know, sometimes when we read these things, we don't experience them in the same form or fashion. We don't probably experience, you know, our life being threatened because of our faith. We can't forget the people that do live in parts of the world that do maybe experience this, that do maybe face, you know, serious consequences for being a Christian or maybe having a Bible. To get to the root of what caused the opposition of the Thessalonians in the early church, I want to read one more quote by N.T. Wright. He says, because of the church, because the church in giving its allegiance to the crucified Jesus as Lord was challenging the still active powers of the world. The battle between the true God and the powers of the evil that enslave and deface humankind came to its height on the cross. But the church is charged with implementing the victory that was won there, and the powers don't like it. At the wider level, this means that pagan rulers and authorities, and supremely Caesar himself will strongly object to the gospel of another king being announced within their domains. This is according to Acts 17.7, which is precisely what happened when Paul was first at Thessalonica. And if you read uh, Acts 17.7, that's when they talk about, you know, they're doing things that aren't lawful, even talking about another king that's not Caesar, things that are against Caesar. At the more focused level, it meant that those Judeans who had rejected the message of Jesus, which challenged their whole view of God, the world, and themselves, had continued to reject the deeply subversive claims of the early Jewish Christians in their midst and had indeed done their best to stamp out the little movement and that's from Paul for everyone his commentary on Galatians and Thessalonians and so as I was reading this I was just trying to think both the Thessalonians and the Judeans the Jews and their experience with persecution and I was thinking about you know those first Jews or those first Christians that were all Jews And in all the areas of the Roman Empire, those early Christian Jews had the most in common with their fellow non-Christian believers. Although the apostles, they had experienced and witnessed the persecution that Jesus had went through and even heard Jesus' words in person about how they would experience persecution, there must be some of these believers that maybe didn't experience Jesus physically, firsthand, didn't hear the things that Jesus said. Heard about, the, heard about the things that Jesus said. They were converted later after the, the resurrection and ascension. And they didn't have the first-hand knowledge that maybe some of those early brethren. You know, J, Jesus had disciples, right, that followed him. But there was also other people who followed him that might have seen things and heard the things of Jesus. And then later, there's people who would be converted, just maybe a few years later, after Jesus ascends. And so, I, I, I kind of wonder if some of those Jews who were converted later after the crucifixion, that maybe they were a little surprised at the level of opposition they experienced by their fellow Jews. I mean, I'm sure they probably expected, yeah, it's going to cause some waves. You know, I'm completely reinterpreting Isaiah 51 and you know, all those different passages, Right? It's going to cause maybe some some issues uh, in the synagogue with their neighbors, with their family. But they might not have expected for that opposition to be to the degree that it was. But one thing that we can observe from world history is that when there is an established orthodoxy, religious or otherwise, and that means this is the way things are, this is the way you do it, this is the way we believe it, This is the way that we interpret it. When there's an established orthodoxy, deviating from that orthodoxy can bring about opposition, as we see it did, obviously, for the early Christian Jews among their fellow Jews, and likewise, as it did to the Thessalonians, by accepting Jesus as Lord, which was, of course, an implicit way of rejecting the lordship of Caesar and the civil religion of the imperial cult. Simply put, this new belief system challenged the culture. It challenged the culture of the Thessalonians, and of course it challenged the culture of the Judeans and the established status quo. And I think that it's safe to say that the gospel message for us today is still a threat to our culture at many different levels. Now, my personal opinion, and I'm saying this because Everyone has different perspectives on this, and this isn't like one of those essential doctrine things. I think most of the opposition, and maybe you agree with me, that we face in today's age is more at an ideological level. And what I mean by this is what we are probably more likely to experience is opposition for the worldview that we hold. Now, of course, it was ideological for, for Paul and for the Jews and for, for, for the, you know, the Thessalonians, but... I think that things today, when we think about the ethics that we believe in, what's deemed moral and immoral, and for the values we hold, those are things that have always been maybe ridiculed by non-Christians to some extent. But I think that in this day and age that we live in, there is a push for secularization, for rooting out anything that seems to be Judeo-Christian values, uh, there, there, there definitely seems to be a very vigorous push. I'm not saying the majority. I'm saying that it, it does seem to be recognized when you look at things. And then, of course, where does this bleed into? This is going to bleed into you know, different aspects of our society, educationally, uh, politically, of course, uh, which is probably where we see most of it because there's laws that are passed. And sometimes the motivation for those laws is try to correct what maybe they believe is a wrong because a, maybe a value, maybe a, you know, or a, a, maybe a law, or maybe there's a law that what undergirds that law is a value which they think you know, undermines or is prejudiced against a group of people that might not uh, accept that view, accept those, that value that the law or that the way of life is based on. Even at the individual level, we are told to do, and I say we are told, society, what it pushes us, and our own carnality is probably definitely in line with this because we have human nature. But at our societal level, or at, our, at the individual level, we have this you know, what's best for me? What makes me happy? What brings me fulfillment? Right? Those are things that we have to fight against. That's a That's a cultural thing that probably goes back for many, many different centuries, but now we have the you know, we have this new world that we live in, where we have social media, we have more advertisement media than we ever experienced probably at all at exponential levels. And so we see this in our face more and more. And of course, that individualism, that individualism, that individualism that says you need to do what's best for you, you need to look out for you, you need to do what makes you happy, what brings you fulfillment, that individualism is in stark contrast to the gospel message of living a life of complete servitude to Christ. So, when I say this, when I bring this out, why I want to bring this out is because when we live out the Christian message, I believe as the world shifts, the society we live in, shifts more to these secular values, to these, you know, values or to these, uh, you know, anti-values, whatever you want to call them, when it shifts that way, the more it does, the more our life, the way we live, the ethics we hold is going to stand out in comparison to the shift that's taking place. And because of that, I think that you will see more and more opposition. Not only will we face opposition, of course, by our culture, because we're, we're out of step, Right? You know, Christianity, it's out of step. It's, it's morals and values and ethics based upon this, you know, this book that's, you know, old and, and, and it really doesn't have any relevancy, that's really filled with mostly myths, might have some wisdom here and there, but, of course, definitely not the Word of God. But not only will we face opposition by our culture, we sometimes are going to face opposition by fellow Christians, by our own brethren in faith. We are part, of course, what is considered by most people looking outside of this denomination or faith tradition, probably somewhat of a unique Christian faith tradition. You know, although our theological beliefs have a lot in common with many other Christian denominations, and we do, there's definitely some things that we do that stands in contrast to many other mainline Christian denominations. We worship on a different day. Of course, that can bring about, you know, uh, opposition uh, by means of people maybe disagreeing with us. We live in a free country and we can believe what we want, but sometimes when you have discussions, maybe you're with friends, with families, and, you know, you're out of step because of that. We abstain from unclean meats. We don't participate in what is considered probably Christianity's most important days of the year, Christmas and Easter. And so all of these things may in your experience have brought about opposition now i live a little bit different experience in terms of i grew up in this church You know it wasn't like i had one way that i believed in one faith or you know i didn't come from a different denomination and then switch over and then you have you know your family or you have your friends you have the people from another congregation you know it's it's really you've really upturned your life so to speak and it Sometimes can cause problems. it can cause heartache. So I haven't experienced that, but maybe you have. Maybe it's been from, of course, like I said, life or uh, excuse me, friends, coworkers, employers, even family because what they perceive, what you do, is a radical change, is a radical disruption to what they perceive as normal. And I'm reminded of Mark the sixth chapter. Let's go there real quick. Mark the sixth chapter. Mark 6, verse 1. Interesting story. I never really thought about it like this until I actually was preparing this message. But, but it says in Mark the 6, verse 1, Then he went out from there and came to his own country. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him? That such mighty works are performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. They were offended at him. His own countrymen, they were offended at him because of the things that he was saying. Now some of them might have been jealous, we don't know. Uh, they might have thought, well, who, who are you? You're, you're making yourself higher than we are. You, you're from, you know, you're from the same place we are. And you're coming here in the synagogue and you're thinking that you're going to teach us. And so what I was, what's interesting to me is, is that the most unlikeliest places sometimes we can find opposition. You would think that these individuals would think, hey, this is Jesus. He's one of ours. Look what he has to say. Look at the wisdom that he has. But that's not what takes place. I think that another aspect that we can get from this section of Scripture is we talked about how what Paul is doing is pastoral. He's comforting the Thessalonians. He's trying to bring them comfort by showing them, look, what you're experiencing, you come from a long line of other individuals, fellow brethren that experience the same thing. The Judean churches of God, they experience the same thing from their own countrymen. And so when I was thinking about this, it got me thinking about how we need to make sure that we don't neglect telling our stories to our fellow brethren. And what I mean by that is is that sometimes people go through things, and you've went through something, and sometimes sharing that can bring about and demonstrate and let them know that there's solidarity between you and that brethren. That it's comforting to know that, you know what, this person's going through this, but you know what, five years ago I was going through something very similar and I'm going to tell my story. Because I'm going to tell the story about you know, how God brought me through that or how it all worked out, what I learned from it. So I think that that's something that we can get from this. Because I think persecution, things that people go through, opposition, it can be a lonely feeling, right? It can be a lonely feeling. And I think that it's important for us to pick each other up and encourage each other. And I think sometimes that's done by or in the form of telling our story. In conclusion, I know that this message was a difficult one. At least it was for me in preparing it. Uh, There are many different ways that I could go with it. And I think that we could spend a lot more time analyzing what Paul meant in these passages. But I think one of the primary things that we can focus on is that all of us in this Christian body will face persecution, opposition, trials brought about by people. And sometimes they come from places that you don't expect them. But this does not mean that God does not care about us. This does not mean that God's plan has went awry, that it's going wrong, that hey, this wasn't in the cards. We know that this is continually mentioned by Paul and Jesus. You're going to have trouble in the world, but don't faint heart. Don't lose heart. I've overcome the world. We have to remember that we are not alone. That we are a part of a long line of Christian witnesses who went through the same things, albeit in different forms. And I would like to close with just one more passage in James, the first chapter. And James uses a more general term that can rep- apply to persecution, opposition, or just trials that befall us that aren't you know, necessarily persecution. But James says this in chapter one, verses two through four: My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect lacking nothing. Opposition, persecution, things we go through, they have a purpose. And God can work out His purpose through those things that we go through. We're not alone. We have a long line of Christian witness that we see in the New Testament and even going back to people in the Old Testament that had faith in God that stood up in opposition to people that were trying to cut them down for what they believed in, but in the face of that opposition were steadfast, kept the faith, and we see even them haven't received the promises yet, but they will, and so so will we.